How many of you know what that sound was at the end? <laughs> if you're under 25, you're like, I have no idea what that was. <laughs> oh, well, it's good to be here with you. Uh, as Kurt said, my name is Josh Edwards. Um, today's a milestone for me. Uh, so since we're just celebrating everything, I'm going to celebrate this too. Prior to today, I have had the unique and distinct privilege of speaking at all of the campuses of Bridgewater except Tonkanic. So today, I get to speak in Tonkanic. And I, I heard, I heard, I saved the best for last. <laughs> well, it's good to be with you. Um, I have attended Bridgewater, as Kurt said, for about six years. Um, I have three teenagers, and we are, like most families, my wife and daughter are up in New York at a dance competition, and then later today we're doing a musical at the high school, and we're just spread everywhere today. So, But it's great to be here with you, worshiping uh, together today. It, man, this is, a, this is really a monumental day for, for some of you guys. This might be the largest human I've ever seen baptized. <laughs> so, so congrats, bud. It's, it's really awesome because as we're going to hear, a lot of what was shared in the stories and in the testimonies is exactly, man, if I could have scripted people to get baptized today to feed into what we're going to talk about, this would be the day. Because we're going to continue in our series called Outdated. And really we're looking at this idea of biblical truths that to some are, are just a little, maybe they seem outdated. Or behind the times. Now, I grew up in a fairly traditional Christian home. And what that meant for me, and some of you grew up in a similar traditional Christian home. But for me, that meant I accepted a lot of the tenets that are found in Scripture. Things, things like God is God. And Jesus is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. And I have no idea how that all works out. But I'm okay with that. Like tenets like, I believe Jesus died on the cross, and then was buried, and then three days later, rose again to life. I have no idea how that happened, but I'm okay with that, too. These are tenets that I have come to accept, and, and throughout my life, people have come to me and said, Josh, you are just so naive to, to, to look at your... At your belief system off of a book that was written thousands of years ago, how on earth does that make any sense? And you know what? That's okay with me too. Today, we're continuing on in the series. And if you missed last week, you're not going to want to continue missing it. So jump onto the app, listen to the podcast, and listen how we talked about the, the biggest, probably most controversial idea that many today feel is outdated, and that's the idea and the biblical truth that hell is a real place. That hell is a real place. And so last week and for the next few weeks, we're going to continue to look at these truths that are found in Scripture, that are taught in, in, in the Bible, and by today's standards, many would feel are outdated. Now, as Kurt said, I attend the Montrose campus, and Pastor Bob last week uh, many of you know Pastor Bob. He came up onto the stage wearing this, like, vest, I guess you would call it. 
And he had tight rolled jeans, and some of you are going to have to Google that. Some of you are, like, nostalgic right now. Tight rolled jeans, and he had these, like, circular sunglasses, and, man, he was groovy. <laughs> and I, today, was going to come up onto the stage dressed in some sort of outdated uh, garb, and my teenagers reminded me, Dad, everything you own is outdated. <laughs> so you get what you get. So today we're looking at this idea, we're continuing in the series, and we're looking at this idea that God created everything. God created everything. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created everything. And that is a biblical belief that is attacked today, relentlessly attacked by many. For the last hundred plus years, the creation of the world by God has been argued relentlessly. Why? Well, because that premise, that idea that God created everything flies in the face with the largest religious belief system in existence, which is the belief system of secularism. Now, what is secularism? Secularism teaches that God has nothing to do with your life. God has nothing to do with everyday life. Keep God out of work. Keep God out of politics. Keep God out of school. Keep God out of everything. This is a belief system that can be traced back to Thomas Jefferson that can be traced back to Ben Franklin, and today is more popular by men like Elon Musk and Bill Gates. One of the most difficult places to push God out of is creation. And if, if you can succeed to push God out of creation, then you know what happens to the rest of everything else? It's easy. It's easy to push God out of that, because if you can push God out of creation... Everything else is easy. So we're looking at Scripture. What does the Bible say about creation? If you're taking notes, the first thing that the Bible says is that God created everything out of nothing. Out of nothing. Now you're going to get a little Latin lesson today. How's that? Bring a new guy in and he's going to teach you Latin. That's exciting. So there's a Latin phrase that says it's called ex nihilo. And what that means is created out of nothing. I just think that sounds so much cooler than nothing. Created out of nothing. God created ex nihilo. He created everything out of nothing. Genesis 1.1 reminds us, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 16 says, For in him, in God, all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so many other verses throughout Scripture say that God created ex nihilo. He created everything out of nothing. Now this belief system is very different than any other ancient excuse me, any other creation myth that is out there. And all of those 
creation myths. You have things being created out of a small g, God's slain body or spit. Or in one ancient myth, everything was created out of a cosmic turtle. Don't know what that's all about. The biblical story is vastly different than any other ancient story of creation. Now, I am not a scientist. I am a banker. Normally, they bring me in to talk about money and tithing and how, you know, how you're supposed to give. But today, they brought me in to talk about, a little bit about creation. Now, my wife has a degree in biology, so I kind of leaned on my wife a little bit for some of this information. But what does science say about creation? The law of conservation and mass, which is a part of the more familiar law of thermodynamics, states that matter cannot be created or destroyed. In other words, nothing can exist without something or someone outside of that thing bringing it into existence. If you think about it, that sounds a lot like Genesis 1.1. But if you're a scientist whose secular religion denies the existence of God, you have to come up with something else, right? No matter how crazy it sounds, you say things like it was an extra-dimensional rift, a quantum fluctuation in nothingness. You know, if you just use big words that people don't understand, you can get any point across you want, right? You could say maybe it was just a, a multiverse explosion. You know, my kids are really looking forward to that new Doctor Strange movie. Sounds plausible, right? Maybe, maybe it was just a really powerful alien like an experiment from an alien from another dimension. Is there one shred of evidence for any of those possibilities? No. But by faith, evolutionists believe. Why? Because they don't want to believe in God. Even if a belief in God is the most rational Logical and plausible explanation. I've heard it said that it takes more faith to be an evolutionist than to be a believer in God. So scripture tells us that God created everything out of nothing. The second thing that scripture tells us is that God created plants and animals to produce after their own kind. We read on in Genesis, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees, on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. All life was created by God. It's complex beyond random chance. It is complexity that is only explained by intelligent design. Richard Dawkins, a famous evolutionist, wondered if aliens started Earth, started Earth out. Why? 
Because the more we learn about biology, the crazier evolution becomes. See, science actually agrees with creation. The law of biogenesis states that life cannot cannot originate from non-life. Life cannot originate from non-life. Essentially, spontaneous generation is not possible scientifically. In 1668, William Harvey, I know that was like right on the tip of all of your tongues who I was going to from 1668, determined and proved that fly maggots came from eggs on meat and they did not just spontaneously generate. Prior to 1668, people saw spoiled meat and all of a sudden there were flies and maggots on it. So the natural conclusion is they just appeared. Well, William Harvey said, no, there's actually eggs. They cannot spontaneously generate. They cannot spontaneously start. In 1864, Louis Pasteur, again, a name I knew you, you all were thinking I was going right to, proved that it is impossible for even microorganisms and viruses and bacteria to arise from non-life. They cannot spontaneously generate. But five years before Louis Pasteur published that, I'll buy you a coffee if anybody knows who wrote a book in 1859. Charles Darwin wrote one of the most popular books in today's history on origin of the species. And he said ideas like this. Diverse groups of animals evolve from one or a few common ancestors. Essentially, life generated through spontaneity. But five years later... Louis Pasteur, an atheist, said that's not possible. Life cannot start from nothing. Life has to start from something. But it doesn't matter, right? To to an evolutionist, that doesn't matter. Why? Because they don't want to believe what science proves. In 1981, Francis Crick, who is an evolutionist, he was the co-founder of the double helix structure of DNA, said this, and I'm going to put the quote up here because this is too powerful to miss. He says, an honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. Life is a miracle, according to an evolutionist. Science shows that life is designed by a designer. 
So the Bible tells us that God created everything out of nothing. And that those creations reproduce after their own kind. And the third thing that we're going to look at this morning that, that the Bible tells us about creation is that God created humans to be special. In Genesis 1.26, we read, Let us make man, this is God saying, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over all the creatures that move. There's two things found in that verse that make us special. That make people, humans, special. The first is this. People and humans are special because we are created in God's image. If you don't believe in God, you have no logical basis for any morality or meaning in life. That doesn't mean that if you're here this morning and you don't believe in God, that doesn't mean you can't be moral and you can't live a meaningful life. That's not what that means at all. Because truly, many people who do deny God's existence are moral people and are people that live life of meaning. But if I find myself not believing in God, I don't have to live a life of morality or meaning. I can do whatever I can get away with. Which essentially means if I believe that I'm a random lump of matter, I can go to Kevin who's just another random lump of matter and I can disassemble him if I think I can get away with it because there is no morality. There is no meaning of life. People are special because we're created in God's image the logical conclusion of secularism, remember that belief that denies the existence of God in your life today, is something called determinism. Determinism essentially says that you have no freedom. You have no real choice. A bang started everything. And it got you moving around like a pool ball on a pool table. The balls go flying, and really there is no structure. They just, excuse me, they just go. You are just reacting to life in the same way that a pool ball reacts on the table. You have no freedom. And if you have no freedom, then you have no responsibility for your actions. So you can do whatever you want. You know, survival of the fittest, right? The second thing that we find in that verse in Genesis 1.26 is that, and, and hang with me, all right, this is going to be tough for some of you, people are more valuable than animals. I know you love your cat Whiskers, and I know you love your dog Bruno, and, and we don't talk about Bruno. There you go. He's tracking But the Bible says people are more valuable than animals. That's what Scripture says. Why? Well, because animals can't choose right from wrong. Animals have no soul. Animals really don't have a choice. If you feed 
and love a dog, you know what's going to happen? That dog is going to love you back. It's going to shower you with that affection as long as you feed and love it. If you feed and love a human, you know what happens? You might get bit. (laughs) See, animals don't have that choice, that soul that humans have. Humans are different than animals. People have a moral choice because people are different. God commands us to take care of those creatures. God commands us to take care of the earth. There's a verse that you didn't expect to see in a creation sermon. Revelation chapter 11 says this. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great. And the time has come for destroying those who destroy the earth. God is going to judge people, not just for how they treat other people, but God's going to judge people for how they treat the earth. Now, hang with me, because evolution teaches us that it's survival of the fittest. According to evolution, hunting a species into extinction is the point. If you can wipe something out, you should. Survival of the fittest. That's what evolution tells us. Clearly, they're not the fittest if they can be wiped out. Last week, Pastor Bob in Montrose said this, and I thought it was striking. He said, people say that humans are the only creatures that hunt for sport. And it was amazing because he brought this to my attention. Have you ever seen a fox get into a hen house? What happens in that hen house? That fox kills what he needs to eat and then he leaves, right? Nope. That fox kills every stinking chicken. Almost as if it's fun. When your cat catches that mice, that mouse in your house, what does he do with it? If it's in my house, we say things like, stop playing with it. As if it's fun for the cat. See, we are not, as humans, we are not the only creation that hunts for sport. But we have a responsibility to recognize the value that things that God created are. Those things that God created for us, we have a responsibility to recognize those things. But what's fascinating to me is that sometimes our God-given responsibility gets a little screwed up, right? I'm talking about things that are not wrong, so let let me preface it, but these things are not wrong. But we do things like, we're going to plant extra flowers for the bees. Not wrong. We're going to put solar panels on our roof to help conserve resources. Not wrong. 
we're, we're going to give money to that, you know, that, that commercial with like those neglected animals and that really sad music comes on. We're going to give money to that. Not wrong. We're going to give a dollar to the guy standing on the corner because he looks like he really needs it. That's not wrong. But when we do those things, have we completed everything that God has for us and tasked us with when he says he wants us to care for his creation, to exercise that authority over it? When we do those things, have we checked that box? Last week, we talked about the outdated idea. And for some, the idea that hell is a real place, that's still a little foreign to you, but I believe hell is a real place, and I would, I would imagine that there are people in here today who agree with that, and you believe that hell is a real place. My question for you, if you believe that hell is a real place, how does that belief impact how you treat God's creation? I'm talking about the people that God Created. How does your belief in hell, your realization that hell is a real place, how does that affect how you treat God's creation? You might say, well, I gave that guy my last dollar. Literally, I have no more dollars in my wallet. Gave it all to him. Uh, you might say, Josh, I, I let my neighbor borrow my chainsaw, and you know how this guy is with my chainsaw. I, I gave him that. You might say, you know, I baked that pie, and I don't have time to bake a pie, but I baked that pie for our neighbors. Isn't that loving God's creation? Is that what God meant, though? Is that all that God meant? Those things are not bad. And yes, you should lend your tools to your neighbor, even if they're not going to give them back. You should bake a pie for your neighbor because that's the nice thing to do. But is that what God meant when he said, I want you to care and love for my creation? I believe that God tasked me with loving his creation by caring for where those people spend eternity. That's what God meant for me. When he says, I want you to care for my creation. I want you to steward my creation. Now that doesn't mean that I am to be those people's savior. Thankfully, that job is already taken by a much better suited candidate than me. I am not to be their savior, but I am to be a conduit for them. Pointing them to the Savior, pointing them to the one who, who already conquered death, who already overcame that separation. My job is to point them to the one who loves them so much more than I could. Years ago, there was a story, and some of you might have heard it, uh, comedian Penn Jillette, and if you don't know that name, this is what he looked like. Apparently, he's lost like 100 pounds or 200 pounds, so he looks less like that now, but that's him. He told this story on, on his blog. Some of you don't know what a blog is, so that tells you where the, how old this story is, but he told this story. He said after one of his shows, he said he was outside greeting some of the fans, and there was a man standing off 
off a, off a little ways, and he saw him over there. And after everybody kind of cleared out, this man came over. And, and, and Penn says, this man was very complimentary of the show, had very good things to say. He said, and then he handed me, he said, a pocket-sized Bible. I imagine a little Gideon Bible. He handed Penn Jillette a pocket-sized Bible, and he said this to Penn. This man said, there are many things that this Bible says that are true, and things in there have changed my life. I hope that it can change your life too. And then the man walked away. Penn opened up the book, and he noticed that the man's name and cell phone number was in there and an email address. Now, Penn Gillette, in case you don't know, is a very outspoken atheist. He is a very, very outspoken secularist. God has nothing to do with anything. But Penn Gillette said this. He said, this man cared about me so much to put himself in an awkward position and tell me that what he believed was true. And these words struck with me, struck me and, and stick with me to this day. He said, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them the truth? If you believe you have the truth and you don't share it with me, how much do you hate me? He says, if I, this is what he said, if I believe that there is a truck barreling down to take you out, and I believe that that is true, I don't care if you don't believe it. At some point, I am going to tackle you and get you out of the street because I believe your life is important, even if you don't believe that that's going to happen. Penn said, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them the truth? So if you believe that there is a hell and you do not tell someone about that truth and that belief, do you love them? An atheist would say, you don't. That mindset is starkly different than I'm loving people by giving them a dollar. Many of you would say, Josh, that is like super direct. That takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of moxie to go up to a perfect stranger, a, a arguably celebrity, and tell them about Jesus. That's tough. How can we show God's love to God's creation? About 15 years ago, I was a youth pastor outside of Philadelphia, and I, I, I was new to the area, and um, I, I became familiar with the football program called, from Truman High School, um, and that may mean, not mean anything to you all, but Truman High School, at this time in their, their high school football career, had not won a game in many, many years, and so it was kind of dark. And so I had a chance to go to one of their summer practices, and I met the coach. Coach was, I, I couldn't even begin to put a phrase together that he would say, because I, they would never ask me to preach at any of the, the campuses again. But, but the coach said, he said, Rev, it's nice to meet you. At that time, I was not a reverend, but hey, who cares? So I, I ran with it. I was Rev for the next two years for that football program. So... Coach stops practice, 
And he pulls over 80, 90 kids all together. And he pulls them over and he says, grab a knee. And he says, this is the Rev. He says, Rev's going to do a weekly Bible study. I can't tell you you have to go, but you better go. That's what he said. It's a big black man. And he said, you better go. So the first week I ran my Bible study. I had about 50, 60 kids there. And guess what happened? They won a game. Monumental. They won a game. So the next week I had like 65, 70 kids there in my chapel, my weekly chapel that you better go to. And guess what happened that weekend? They won another game. So the next week, I had like 80 kids. I had coaches. I had students coming. It was like they put us in the main bleachers of this school. It was, excuse me, it was really, really cool. And then that week, something happened that most of us in this room will never, ever, ever have to experience. About a mile from the school, there was a drive-by shooting. And three students lost their lives. Tyrell on the football team lost his life in that shooting. Many other people were injured. This is a school where the senior class president had a hit put out on him by one of the largest gangs in Philadelphia. He had to actually graduate virtually, give his speech virtually, because he was fearful for his life. That's the kind of school this was. So that weekend, the game was canceled, and we gathered on the bleachers. The team, myself, some counselors, some administrators, other, other clergymen from the area, and one by one, those clergymen stood up and they said, they're in a better place. There's no more pain. There's no more hurt. And as I sat there, I couldn't say that. Tyrell had been to one Bible study, and dear God, I hope that he's there. I hope that he's experiencing no more pain, and I hope that he experiences that everlasting connection with God. But I couldn't say that. The coach turned to me, and he says, Rev, give us some hope. I'll never forget those words. Give us some hope. What do you say to 90 boys who are grieving the loss of their brother? To a school that is grieving the loss of three students? What do you say? God put me in that position to express love to those boys. The coach tasked me with giving hope. My message was not these boys are in a better place because I didn't know. My message was not that they were not experiencing any pain because I didn't know. But my message, and I remember these words, if these boys could tell us one thing, there's no more important decision that you can make than what you believe about God. Who is God to you? I stood there with 90 boys looking at me with tears in their eyes, these macho football players, tears in their eyes, saying, God loves you. Because in that moment, that was the best way 
for me to demonstrate my love to God's creation. So this morning, how can you demonstrate God's love to his creation? For some of you, maybe it is going like Rich to his coworker and just saying, hey, what's up? How you doing? Wasn't it overnight? Probably years. But that love has changed a man's life. Was it awkward? Probably a little bit. Rich, was it worth it? Absolutely. Maybe, for some of you, it's taken this card to your neighbor, to your coworker, to the guy down the street, to the, to the person who's serving your table, serving your dinner, saying, hey, I don't know what you're doing in a couple weeks, but I'd love for you to join me. Hey, we even have a Saturday night service. You can sleep in on Sunday. Saturday night service. I'll save you a seat. For some of you, that's the way God wants you to demonstrate his love to his creation. The only thing we're told to do is to love. To love that creation that he created. God, I thank you. I thank you for the privilege of being in a position where we can express that love to you. God, where we can find ways to love others. God, it's not easy. Sometimes it's awkward. But you loved us so much that you gave your son for us. How can we not love others in the same way? God, give us strength and courage and boldness to demonstrate your love to us as we love your creation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.